I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins coming at you with another Q5 podcast episode. That's where I ask some awesome people my five favorite questions that I'll ask in preparation for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions. Today, my guest is Mia Kara Costco. She's the creative director of At Psychedelic Salons in Vancouver, British Columbia. She may have told you recently about her favorite chocolate microdosing brand, or maybe you went to an art party with her. You might have come across her Instagram where she showcases her writing for an upcoming book she'll be publishing next year, or maybe you found her because you watched her 10 gram mushroom trip video. Either way, she's always glad to meet people. She founded Psychedelic Salons in 2019 after initially dreaming about it in 2017 while at a consciousness conference. She always knew that she wanted to create a unique entheogenic community in Vancouver, and after graduating from the University of British Columbia with her degree in psychology, she enrolled in the Landmark Forum, which propelled her to make dreams come true. It was at university that she found her passion for psychedelic medicine and research, and she co-founded the UBC Psychedelic Society. She loves being able to truly and deeply connect with people authentically about the insights from intimately personal medicine journeys. Mia, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I agree. <laughs> well, let's get rolling with question number one. What's your story? Yeah, so you basically touched on some highlights of the story. And essentially what I don't mention in there is I was going to UBC to study psychology, specifically clinical psychology, and I was really intent on being a therapist one day. And I actually knew I wanted to do that ever since I was 12. And that's because I was very curious about human psychology from a young age because my, I, I was raised in a very loving home. However, my mother had mental health issues that really prevented her from being present for me. And she actually passed away when I was very young. I was seven years old. And so this has actually significantly made an impact on my entire life. But the thing about it was that a lot of her demons were, just, were mental health issues. But in the 90s, people didn't really talk about it like they do now, of course. So essentially, 
living in that, it's felt like living in that shadow for a long time. But when I went into psychology at UBC, I started seeing how I felt like there was a lot of narrow-mindedness, a lot of judgmental attitudes towards people who were just really needing help. And that seemed really strange to me because I thought, well, aren't we here to help people? Aren't we here to heal in some way, in, in a way that you know, we can be there for people. But because of there was there was judgment, there was the casual people casually diagnosing people in and out of lecture halls, I thought it was really strange. So when a friend of mine talked to me about psychedelic research, this was around, I want to say 2017. No, this must have been 2015. And there wasn't really anything out there. You know, you could find a few PubMed articles and you saw that a few schools were doing something, but you couldn't really figure out much. So, you know, I got into psychedelics like how we all get into it, right? We have the experiences. <laughs> so as soon as I had these experiences, I knew there was profound healing potential on very deep levels for people. I just, I immediately could tell that I'm, you know, that the, this, this ego disillusionment, this transporting from other worlds, this dimensional sort of oneness experiences we would have, I thought, this is going to rock the world. And I really hope it does. And I'm going to make sure it does. And it's gone that way. Like, how amazing is that, you know? So psychedelics is the one bet I know will always pull through because it's true. Like psychedelic experiences are just simply out of this world. And that's really important for people who don't really like being in this world, but also they don't necessarily want to be addicted to a fantasy. So they're not looking for an addictive escapist routine with psychedelics. They're actually looking to break out of that too sometimes. So so yeah, when I graduated from, from UBC, I, I obviously abandoned my post as the founder of the UBC Psychedelic Society. And I worked, I was working in venture capital actually, because I wanted to learn how money would move and how funds could flow to support psychedelic research. So I worked with a venture capitalist who was donating a portion of profits to psychedelic research. So I would organize sometimes psychedelic fundraiser events. And this just really taught me how money moved because I would talk to researchers and I would say, you know, what, what do you need? Do you need more therapists? Do you need more? Yeah. Do you need more patients for this movement? Do you need manufacturers? Like what's up? And researchers would tell me, you know, it's, the FDA and Health Canada make it really expensive to study these medicines. And we need the studies, we need the science first for a lot of people. So, because science will motivate legislators and legislators will motivate, obviously, legalization or medicalization. And so there was a lot of belief by researchers that psychedelics worked, but they just needed funding. They needed checks signed. And so that was an invaluable experience that I got over three years. But I did, I dearly missed psychedelic community. And I was also burning out because venture capital is not an easy industry to be a human in. So I left when I felt burnout. I ended a relationship. I kind of developed myself to self-development, which is incredible to do when you have a psychedelic sort of awakening, because if you don't know how to integrate your psychedelic insights, then, you know, you kind of get a little lost. <laughs> I've seen it happen a lot where people have a psychedelic experience, but they have, you know, zero plans for integration. And so life just becomes a little bit like, make a little mess here, get a little lost here. And that's fine. That's life. But it is really cool to have an integration plan to sort of know, okay, the whatever insights I have, 
I know, I know that I'm going to fall in with the right community. I'm going to talk to the right people. I'm going to be with people I trust and connect with them to, to know, you know, what is best for me to do instead of, you know, harming people or harming myself not knowing what to do after such a crazy spiritual experience, potentially. I miss psychedelic community. And so that's why I created psychedelic salons, because I wanted psychedelic community that could bridge people I knew in the world of finance and venture capital, and also people I knew that were profoundly gifted psychedelic healers. I wanted psychedelic healers to be known for their work, and I wanted them to get funded because I knew that Often, if you're a healer and you're devoting all of your time to your craft, you're not often devoting your time to business building and funnel empire wealth building, right? So sometimes it just takes a bit of support. It takes some holding hands. So that is what Psychedelic Salons is all about. And and ever since you know venture capital, I've also had a gift, a natural knack for marketing. So I apply my marketing skills for the psychedelic industry. And I always lead with a values-based approach to align myself with the right clients because I've had experiences where I've worked with clients and their intentions are not as, what can I say, elevating for the planet. And that's that's okay. That's their journey. But for me, it's really important. I work with people that are leading with their values are leading with their why. And maybe sometimes we have to explore that together and that's okay too. So marketing psychedelic industry is what I do most of the time and creating psychedelic events to help expose healers to people that can support them or work with them. I love doing that too. That's kind of it. And then also like I, I, I'm a natural writer. If I could spend my, the rest of my days doing one thing, I'd want to just like live on a hill on a mountaintop and write my days away. I'm writing a book and that's what I'm going to do before I do the family thing. So thank you for that excellent segue into the second question. We ask about, you know, memory and story and your past. And then the second question is about what are your intentions? And you mentioned, you know, publishing a book. How much would you be willing to tell us about that ahead of time? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to share more about it. I've copyrighted the title, which I'm really happy about. It's called The Guilt Trip. And essentially, that is meant to, it's meant to really un, what is it, unpack sort of survivor's guilt, and also how psychedelic therapy can help. So the guilt trip is basically that. And this is from, obviously, as I said at the beginning, my personal story of losing my mother. And the grief I had from that was a complete lifelong journey. When you lose your caretaker, when you lose the person that brought you into this world at such a young age, you have a lot of existential thoughts for a seven-year-old. <laughs> like you, you don't quite know where this person went, but you do know that you'll never see them again and you're not quite sure why. And so learning more about death, more about life, more about her, more about me without her, more about motherhood, being a daughter. It's really, it's really been an interesting journey that I've often had to figure out on my own, but in no way am I self-made. So the book is going to be, is one part kind of memoir. I want to connect with people. I want people to know the journey that I've been on to see if they can find a resonance there. The book is also going to talk about a lot of research, research about psychedelic therapy, but also research into cold exposure and meditation modalities that have really helped me in my journey in addition to psychedelics. And then also there's going to be exercises in every chapter to kind of answer the question for people, how they can reclaim their life and grieve in a healthy way. You know, they have options for how to grieve, but I want I want them to know that they also have the option and the choice to grieve in a healthy way that that benefits their life long term, as opposed to grieving in a way where it's not it's not premeditated. It's 
messy, it's chaotic, and that's okay. That's usually the beginning of the grief journey. <laughs> yeah, in psychiatry, we'll talk sometimes about periods of developmental vulnerability, places where, you know, your brain's coming together, it's getting cooked, you know, fetal neural development being a really major thing whenever everything's getting kind of put together in the first place. But to lose that, you know, attachment figure, that symbol, and to have death introduced into your life at the, at the age of seven, and then to have carried that forward and integrated it in the ways that it's obvious you have, excited to read that book someday. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to finish it by the end of this year. Yeah, I, uh, I'll keep an eye out for it for sure. And uh, maybe we can talk more about it some other time after I get a chance to read it and take some notes in the margins and all of that sort of stuff, okay? Totally. So we asked about uh, your past and then about your intentions for the future. And sometimes a good bridge between those things that gives you a little momentum on the journey is to ask, what are you grateful for? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, there's very, there's actually very little I'm not grateful for. I feel like gratitude is a practice that I, I think I practice daily. And when you practice gratitude daily, you kind of become that person, that weird person at friend gatherings who's like, but is there something about the experience that you're thankful for? <laughs> and sometimes people can look at you like crazy and be like, no, this is altogether a horrible situation. And I say, okay, I get that. But also it, it doesn't have to be just that, you know, things are not as they seem. Things are not one, one way. Not everything is just one thing. People aren't just bad people. There's bad behavior, or to be more specific, there could be disingenuous behavior. So with that logic, you know, I think that there can be gratitude found in everything. And, and when you start to see life that way, you start to really feel a sense of empowerment, I think. I think empowerment comes from taking the reins and and seeing the choices and how you perceive things and sort of saying, you know, yes, this situation, there's very, it's very hard, very difficult to find anything useful about this particular situation. But I know that there will be a time when I, when I can look back on this potentially. And there can be something I'm grateful for in this unknown, this chaotic soup, this mess. So yeah, that's kind of an extreme example. Gratitude also as an acknowledgement process, you know, when you're lying out in the sun and, you know, nothing seems to worry you, or maybe your troubles just seem kind of far away and you're on vacation or something. Gratitude is really important to acknowledge, you know, it's in those moments when, you know, it's important to look over your partner or your son or your daughter or your dad or your mom or your sibling or your friend and say, ah, oh, I'm so grateful for you, you know, because you're really acknowledging that, you know, you're a social creature, we need people. And the people that we're thankful for, it's really important to show them that we're thankful. And we don't need to do it in elaborate gifts. We don't need to always do it in big displays of affection, though that's cool too. But we can also just say, you know, I am grateful for you. Like, I, I like you in my life. I appreciate you. <laughs> I see you. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said.
So out of that bridge of gratefulness from the past to the future, out to others, what are you creating? Yeah, I would say that I'll kind of link what I'm specifically grateful for in my life right now to what I'm creating out of that gratitude. And I'll say that right now I'm really grateful for having the insight to write my book. I would say I'm obviously creating that. I'm really grateful, like writing a book, especially when you kind of talk about your whole life, <laughs> potentially in there, like you're, you're open to talking about your entire life. Uh, you become grateful for your life, which is really an empowering process. And if you can do it by writing an autobiography, then dedicate the time to writing out your life story. And, you know, you can start to have acceptance and then maybe you can start to have gratitude. So that just grateful for that whole process too. I'm also grateful for the work I get to do for people every day. So like I said, that's often like marketing psychedelic businesses. I love that I work with people in the psychedelic space because working with people in the psychedelic space, it's a taboo industry. It's not something you can easily call your parents and say, you know, I'm starting a microdosing company or I'm a sound healer or, you know, your, your, your parents are often from generations where that you sound like you're selling snake oil or you sound like a druggie or a drug dealer or something. And that is tricky, right? But if someone is truly dedicated to that space, then they're willing to go through those hard conversations. They're willing to be patient and listen to the misgivings or misinterpretations of others. They're willing to educate or potentially be educated in their own self. And that is really beautiful too, because, so I'm really grateful to work with people at where I'm creating, you know, online funnels for them. I'm creating email newsletter templates for them. I'm creating their social media content because for me, it's so much less about like just creating like a grid feed post and so much more about like educating people and figuring out the most articulate and compassionate led way to educate people. You know, the reason the psychedelic industry is such a world-class industry right now and getting so much buzz and attention right now is because there are people working in this, the people at the forefront of this industry are the people who are approaching the medical field with compassion. That is incredibly rare and it's incredibly important. So grateful for that too. <laughs> also grateful for what I'm creating with psychedelic events too. Right now I'm really focused on an event that I'm creating in Vancouver, which is going to be a kind of global psychedelic dinner party. And I did it in 2019 before the whole COVID thing. And I'm excited to do it again because we're at, you know, we're kind of over the big COVID hump, I guess. And I can feel like I'm confident to do that again. And it's going to be on World Psychedelics Day, which was a day kind of stated, I think a few years ago it was created and it's in spring. And so I'm very excited to spend like the next, yeah, like basically six months really working on that, really brainstorming that and uh, working with some amazing people to do that. And then I'd say another thing I'm grateful for is I'm really grateful for my friends that are absolutely trustworthy and loving and compassionate and friends that are just superheroes in their own right. They're therapists themselves, or maybe they're they share the same interests, but they just, they just live and lead with their heart and they're loyal and they're funny and they're talented and they're smart. And uh, my partner included, my partner and I are thinking of moving to New York actually next year. 
I've always wanted to live in New York. I love it there. I love the energy there. He wants to go to grad school to actually work at the forefront of AI ethics and policy, which I think is another very important <laughs> field, but something for another time <laughs> to discuss. And I'm really, I'm really supportive of him doing that as well, because AI is kind of another mysterious field that people don't quite know much about. It does require ethics and safety around that. And for me, ethics and safety in the psychedelic world is actually one of the most important topics for me to talk about because I find I, I find I can easily create safety with people like a safe space but um, it's not always the case for everybody and people have great intentions but safety and ethics is is core in these in these out of this world psycho spiritual experiences so yeah grateful for all that and creating that <laughs> yeah you're talking about all my favorite things, the golems, the generative large language models of AI, and I love superhero therapists and uh, all good things. When is World Psychedelics Day? Is it different than Bicycle Day? It is different than Bicycle Day because Bicycle Day is specifically, of course, the invention of LSD, the synthesis of LSD. But World Psychedelics Day, I think it's in June. I want to say it's in June or maybe May. It's in spring. But yeah, spring I was or summer, whatever. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely in spring. Yeah, it's 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 a good time. I mean, it's 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 a newer holiday, but it's pretty cool and it's significant enough to plan an event around it. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice. I'll have to triple check my calendar. I feel like there's a day for everything now, but that's one I'd celebrate for sure. Yeah. So that brings us all the way around to question number 5. Who are you really, Mia? Oh my goodness, who am I really? Well, I would say that I mean, if we look at the levels of like visibility or optics, yeah, like social positioning, I would say that, you know, on online in the virtual world, I would say that I put out a specific extension of my brand where I talk mostly about psychedelics and social media and marketing sometimes too. I talk a lot about psychology and spirituality. Those are all topics I legitimately love to talk most about behind the scenes too. And you know, I, you know, sometimes when all my girlfriends just want to talk about is like breakups and relationships and social influencing and hierarchies and gossip, you know, I, I'm easily that person who will want to, you know, switch the conversation to talking about like, what are we up to in the world right now? Like, what are we, what are we doing? Like in our day to day, what keeps us going? So there's that, but also, yeah, I think that, I think that on that note too, I think this is what I've noticed after working in the psychedelic space for eight years now is that, you know, I think a lot of business networking is based on like people's relationships with other people. And sometimes that's dictated by, you know, how romantic relationships go, how friendships go, you know, sometimes it's like how, how deals went. And so you'll find that, you know, under, you know, if you're an innocent person coming to a psychedelic conference, for example, you might be like, oh my goodness, this is great. Everyone's talking about these amazing substances and chemicals and I'm going to like learn so much. And it's like, yes, you definitely are. But within every field, there's always going to be weird hierarchies, power plays, power struggles, gossip behind the scenes. And I only I only mean to address this because who am I really is is a question that different people in my life can answer differently. And and I respect all of it because something that I address in my book is is really something I address in my book is 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 kind of like the not so pretty aspects of me and i've learned to really embrace the side of me that's like not perfectly well curated or picture perfect i've never been someone who's who's wanted to lie about who i am 
because I just don't believe that that's useful for anything or anybody. And that means that there's been an important process in my life of going, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in being, in being portrayed as some sort of innocent victim of my life or situations in my life, like losing my mother. I would much rather be, be known for the truth of having like a villainous side to me than just be painted as this innocent victim, this sort of martyr. And, and some people truly get that. And some people don't because you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's quite vulnerable to kind of put yourself out there and be like, yeah, I am totally not perfect. I'm a walking contradiction. I say things that I don't mean and I get angry and I get upset with people and I don't, I, sometimes I just lose it (laughs) and I do that. And, but I think that the more you go on a spiritual cleansing journey of accepting that, that side of yourself, which everybody has, then I think you can work with it better and you can talk to it better. I think rage is an important part of any journey. Anger is an important part of any journey, but look how we treat anger. We exile anger. We, we, we cast it off. We, we pretend it's not a core fundamental human emotion and experience. When that happens, then we start wars and then we, then we get all justified in our anger and we let it lead us in these unconscious ways that can be really harmful. And so it's really important to like understand the full spectrum of human emotions. So who am I really is somebody who I put myself out there pretty much as authentically as I can, even though right now I'm taking a social media break. And that's largely because for me, I find that, you know, I think it's important to take a step back and, and really just immerse yourself in the real world and remember what it was like before social media, before cell phones, even <laughs> before the computer, before the internet. And to remember like, Hey, our ancestors, they, they did just fine without the internet. I mean, they were still going through their motions, but they, they, they didn't need it. It wasn't necessary for them. It's helpful, but it's also like, I think that, I think that if, if for example, social media was all gone tomorrow, I'd be totally fine with that. Though I would want to keep my phone to text people and to call people when I want. (laughs) Well, after hearing all about who you really are, I don't think it's any accident at all that you're here on the anti-heroes journey podcast now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the hero's journey process with Joseph Campbell. And I use that actually in my process of writing with clients who want to, they, who they want to rewrite their bio or their story. So yeah, totally. I'm super glad you were willing to be interviewed here. Do you have any final thoughts for our audience? Yeah. Yeah. More than willing to be here. Happy to, happy to talk and share and hopefully help people. I would say, I guess, final words or something, I would say, you know, I just, I I really want to encourage people in this day and age to understand and practice how important it is to be forgiving and compassionate, especially with yourself first. If you're, if you're not being forgiving and compassionate with yourself and your past and your history, then, then your process is incomplete. You know, looking back at your life and forgiving and being compassionate with the people and yourself in your life's journey is very, very, it cannot be overstated, actually, how important that is. We're seeing right now the mirroring of that in the virtual world and in cancel culture. And cancel culture is quite insidious, but it's just really a mirroring reflection of how we exile parts of ourselves and we we treat parts of ourselves badly or negatively and we try to silence it or, or just pretend it doesn't exist. And that is not getting us anywhere, anywhere great anywhere fabulous. So (laughs) yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. We've got to integrate it all, right? Hero and anti-hero. Villain and bystander and victim, all the, all the roles, right? We got to pull them all in and make them all part of the whole, replace the hierarchies with the holearchies.
Yeah. Yeah, really. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Doc. And I love uh, I love the discussion we had today. <laughs> thank you so much for reaching out and having me on. And it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, Let's talk again after I get a chance to read your book. Yeah, totally. I would love to share more. Doc out. <laughs>